Your Father, again, we ask for your direction and guidance as we contemplate your great work throughout biblical history, throughout the history of this world, to preserve your sacred word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. title of the presentation is The Story of the Bible and the Tower of Babel. And um, it's going to be a bit of a history lesson. And to to help you, uh, I've made some notes here for you to follow. And we'll refer to them uh, several times during the presentation. And so if I could have a couple of people pass these out. I think we have enough for, I'm sure, everybody here today. God did not write the Bible, except for the Ten Commandments, which he wrote personally. God spoke and men wrote divine message, human words. Indeed, there was no written word of God during the first 2,600 years after creation, but they did have the spoken, oral, audible word of God. And as our text that Paul read a few moments ago, indeed, faith does come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. During most of Earth's history, most of the people could not read or write. And even today, there are a number of people groups whose dialects still have no alphabet. But the Word of God was transmitted faithfully, um, face to face, audibly, horribly, from father to son through the messianic line of patriarchs. One might ask, why was there no written word of God before Moses? Well, it wasn't necessary. One of the residual blessings from the Garden of Eden, the Tree of Life, was photographic memories. And uh, for a long time, that was true. Perhaps you have met somebody along the way uh, with photographic memory. It's quite amazing. They can look at a page of a telephone directory and immediately tell you everything back. Um, that's the way our brains were supposed to work <laughs> uh, in the beginning. But uh, now God in his mercy knew we were going to need help. And so when Moses came along, uh, the Bible began to be written down. Um, from the time of Moses, the Bible was written by hand and hand copied for 2,800 years until the Gutenberg printing press was invented in 1455. There are no original copies of the Old Testament or New Testament in existence today. The Bible, as we see it today, we have in our hands, representing the 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, were written over a 1,500-year period, beginning in about 1400 B.C., going to about 100 A.D. There are no perfect translations but there are great translations and some that are less than great. Some of the uh, great moments in the, the audible 
spoken word of God is the Garden of Eden, which was about 4000 BC, uh, according to biblical chronology. And of course, God spoke to Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth. And later he spoke to them again, of course, right after the fall uh, with the promise of the Redeemer. Uh, Enoch received messages from God. And we know that from the book of Jude in the New Testament when it spoke of Enoch being a prof prophesying about the second coming. Uh, Noah, of course, received messages from God and detailed instructions. Uh, and we understand that to be about 2400 B.C. And then there was Peleg, uh, which one of the descendants of Noah, and the Tower of Babel, which was around the 2100 B.C., and then the call of Abraham, 1900 B.C. Um, now, on the page that I get, just gave you, there's a graph on one side which compares the lifespans and how they related to each other of the patriarchs. And I'd like you to take a look at that. Uh, when you look at that closely, realize that Abraham could have easily received the story of the flood and of creation directly from Shem. Because Shem apparently lived for 150 years after the birth of Abraham. And Shem could have certainly received uh, the story uh, of creation uh, from Methuselah, who received it directly from Adam. So you have 2,100 years of, of the oral, audible word of God, biblical history, directly through just four people face to face. So they had no trouble in keeping the story straight. They had photographic memories. And of course, there were a lot of other people in the messianic line they certainly interacted with. But they had the privilege, Abraham had the privilege of talking with Shem, who talked with Methuselah, who talked with Adam. And you think of that time span and what a privilege it was to hear the true story of how the world began and the fall and the flood and, and all of that directly from these eyewitnesses. Now, I could ask the question, what did Peleg, the great-great-grandson of Shem, have to do with the history of the Bible? Uh, well, it says in Genesis 19.25 that to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, which meant division. For in his days, the earth was divided. And some people have thought, well, maybe that's when the continents moved around and all of that going on. Uh, but I undoubtedly that happened at the time of the flood. So what was it that caused some sort of division among the people at that time during the, during the, during the lifespan of Peleg? And it would have been the Tower of Babel. And in, and in chapter 11, it's where God comes down. They're building this tower. They're going to prove God wrong. They don't believe the rainbow's promise. They're going to prove God wrong, going to build this world empire and they said, lest we be scattered. God had already told them he wanted them to go out and fill the whole earth. And they said, ah, we're going to stay right here. And we're going to build this tower. And next time the flood comes, we'll be okay. Um, so God came down, changed all of that, and confused, as the Bible says, confused their language. Uh, now today there are more than 6,000 languages in the world. 
Um, however, there are less than 10 great families of languages. We happen to be a part of the Indo-European family. Um, and these are related. And that suggests that God didn't have to create thousands of languages, perhaps only 10 or less. Time and distance and later imperfect memories and hearing would create all these numerous grandchildren of the original languages. Even today, you know, we, we think we hear somebody say something and we don't get it quite right. And they say, well, that's not what I said. Well, that's how languages start <laughs> when somebody, you know, forgetting what they heard. And so things happen uh, in time and distance, of course. And so God's purpose of spreading people out, but also for the purpose of slowing down the progress of evil. Because with the oceans and the continents and these great distances, these great separations, God in his mercy, in order to give the fragile plant of his righteousness, this, this messianic lion, which was so delicate and so thin, a chance to grow, he had to slow down, as he had at the flood, slowing down evil. Um, and again, he has to intervene again to slow down evil and disperse people. Now, one could ask, as I have often thought, how many people were living at the time in the Tower of Babel at the confusion of the original language? And this event, according to biblical chronology, seems to be somewhere around 200 years after the flood. What's well, interesting that during the 250, 15 years that the children of Israel were actually in Egypt, Jacob's family grew from 70 to over a million and a half. It's 200 years. They all had big families. And so there could have been easily more than a million people living at the time of the Tower of Babel uh, that then got dispersed <laughs> over the rest of the world. The first alphabet was invented by the Egyptians sometime after the Tower of Babel and, and the scattering of broad diverse people. Egypt, according to the Bible, was already an established country when, when Abraham was alive. Their system of picture writing was called hieroglyphics, which consisted of over a more, more than a thousand characters representing words and sounds, but with pictures. Extremely complex, so that only a few highly trained scribes could read and write it. But it was also subject to misinterpretation, and certainly very few could learn it. A much more precise alphabet was needed for the new Bible that Moses would begin writing around 1500 BC, years before Christ. And the new alphabet was apparently invented sometime after 1700 BC and sometime just before 1500 BC. And this was the Hebrew alphabet, the language of God's people, which contained just 22 characters, not a thousand characters, just 22 characters. And each of those characters uh, that they would create words out of represented sounds, just like we do today, uh, which made it much more precise. Now, it's interesting, um, Beverly has a book about the, the original ancient Hebrew and what the letters meant and what they looked like. And it's fairly obvious from looking at it that it was influenced whoever created this alphabet was influenced by the Egyptian hieroglyphics. And so my personal thought is that 
Maybe God inspired Joseph or Moses to invent this new system of writing, which was much less complicated, much more precise, and could be learned by almost anybody. And it was just in time for the beginning of the written Bible. The, uh, the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew with a few passages in, in Aramaic in Daniel and Ezra. Uh, and there are a, a few uh, words even in the New Testament in Aramaic. Uh, in, in fact, when Jesus on the cross said, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was actually using the Aramaic language, which became the common language of the Jews and much of Palestine at that time. That began during the Babylonian captivity when Aramaic was, was the language of Babylon. And so it continued. So by the time Jesus and the disciples come along, that's the everyday language. That was the language they were talking in and communicating in. Now, they understood Greek because the Greek was an international language for the whole Mediterranean area. But Hebrew was already becoming kind of a dead language. And, they, and the scribes and the Pharisees would study it, and the people would hear it in the synagogue. But in many cases, it was probably translated into Aramaic so they could understand it. Why was the New Testament not written in Aramaic? Well, the New Testament was written during the time period of about 50 years after Christ to about 90 years after Christ. Most of the Christians by that time had left Jerusalem and Judea because of persecution. And so God inspired the writers of the New Testament to use Greek, which was the lingua franca. This was the language of the known world, at least in the Mediterranean area. And so in order to reach the greatest possible population, they chose to write it in Greek, which in that time, many people, of course, would learn several languages, as people in Europe do today. The uh, scribes who hand-copied the scriptures followed extremely strict rules to ensure the accuracy of the sacred manuscripts. Um, they had an incredible list of rules. They had to copy letter by letter. They couldn't just look at a word and write it down as they were copying from whatever their original was onto the next copy so they could send it to the next synagogue or next area. And throughout the centuries, they had to copy extremely carefully. No letter could touch another letter. Each letter had to be one hair width apart from the next one. Um, and if they made a mistake on a sheet of calfskin vellum or whatever they were writing on, sometimes a scroll, but whatever their page was, and they had the columns, and they knew exactly how wide the columns had to be, how long each one had to be, how many letters in each column, and if they made a mistake, just one mistake, they would have to start over completely and destroy that particular page. If three mistakes were found, the entire manuscript that they had been working on probably for months and, and months and months would have to be destroyed and they would start over. They wanted the word of God to be transmitted faithfully, and they did. The uh, proximate timeline of, of Bible translation history, of course, begins about the time of Moses, at the time of Moses, about the year 1400 B.C., when the Ten Commandments were delivered. And then in um, 
200 BC or about 200 years before Christ, there was a translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, which was called the Septuagint because it involved actually 70, well, actually 72 um, scribes who knew both languages extremely well. And so they did a long time working on that when they finally got it translated so that more people could understand throughout the Mediterranean. And that was the Bible that Jesus and the disciples quoted from in the New Testament would have been from the Septuagint, Greek translation. Uh, About the year um, 382 A.D., the translation into Latin by, by Jerome um, was completed. By that time, much of the Mediterranean area was using Latin because of Roman Empire, and so it was translated uh, in, into Latin. Um, however, uh, it was translated from the Greek and not directly from the Hebrew, uh, as far as the Old Testament was concerned. And so there were some problems uh, with this particular translation. Um, for instance, throughout all of the New Testament, any time in our translations that you would hear uh, the apostles saying, repent and be baptized, or you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, John the Baptist, in this Bible, which became the basis for the Catholic Bibles, as you'll see quickly, instead of saying repent, it says do penance. Obviously not a biblical, good biblical translation. Uh, nevertheless, during that time period, that was the Bible, however, not many people could read. The Waldensians and some of the other... <laughs> Reformers that were beginning did have the Bible in their own pure uh, uh, Latin language. Um, but in most cases, the work that Jerome did ended up in monasteries and churches chained to the wall, so very few people had access to it. And as time went by and Latin was moving to the, to the background, no longer being followed or, or understood, in essence, the Church of Rome was locking up the Word of God, so it was very, very difficult, except for the very learned um, people to have access to it. In uh, 1384, uh, John Wycliffe, called the Morning Star of the Reformation, completed the first Bible in English. It was translated, handwritten, from Jerome's Bible. Again, not the greatest translation, but nevertheless, Ten Commandments were there, the gospel was there. Yes, there were some problems, but God had his hand over it and people uh, found salvation because Wycliffe himself taught salvation through faith in Christ and that the Bible was the only source of divine uh, truth. And this was 150 years before Martin Luther came along and nailed his 95 Theses to the door um, of the church. Wycliffe was condemned as a heretic, but he kept on preaching from the English Bible. But God was working to give time for this early phase of the Reformation to get started. And several things happened. One is that um, the Turks on the eastern border 
would cause trouble, and that happened especially during Martin Luther's time. But also, there was so much um, corruption and trouble in the Church of Rome at that time that um, people's eyes began to be open, that they needed the Word of God, they needed to know what truth was, began to realize they were not hearing the truth uh, in many cases. Uh, during that time of, of Wycliffe's life and his ministry, uh, at one point there were two popes who both decided at the same time they were the pope, the sole infallible vicar of Christ. One was at Rome and the other one was in Avignon, France. And uh, they began calling each other, you know, the Antichrist and hurling curses at each other and anathemas and condemnations and everything they can think of and writing these terrible letters. And then eventually they even had armies fighting each other so that they could, you know, get rid of that other false pope. Well, while this was going on, John Wycliffe, who was writing a lot of little tracts, remember, all by hand and being copied by him, he had one that was quite popular. It was called On the Schism of popes, that is, on the division of popes. And he suggested that perhaps for the first time, both popes were telling the truth about each other. People seem to enjoy that quite a bit, even then. 1455, Gutenberg invents the uh, first movable uh, type press, a printing press, which was, many people believe, the greatest invention in all of history. Um, and so for the first time, the Bible could and other things could be mass-produced. Now, the very first book that was printed on Gutenberg's press in Germany was Jerome's Latin Bible. And um, the original one had two volumes, very large. Together, they weighed 70 pounds. In fact, there was a story just recently, a few years ago, where because these are so extremely valuable, and there are no complete copies left. Now, there's some that are very close to being complete, but um, something like 40 in existence, but many of them have some missing pages or you know, not, not completely there. If it could be found, a original, complete Jerome's Bible, I'm sorry, Gutenberg Bible that he printed of, of Jerome's Latin Bible, it would be worth somewhere between 35 and $100 million. Well, apparently, there was a thief who thought he was going to get rich, and he broke into some museum, I guess it was, uh, that had one of these copies. And as he was, and apparently it was up somehow on some high point where people could look up and see it. And so he got up on a ladder and he was trying to get this thing and put it in his knapsack. But he didn't realize it weighed 70 pounds. And so as he put it in the knapsack, it knocked him off and he fell all the way down and, and, and broke his crown, uh, as that saying says. Um, and so he didn't get the Bible. But it's amazing how valuable. What's sad is that Gutenberg died as a pauper. He had a business partner that was helping finance the printing, his first printings, and something happened, and he got taken advantage of, so the poor fellow died as a pauper. But yet he was the one used by God to make it possible for the Bible to go around the world and be available to everyone uh, in 1516, uh, Erasmus, a, a Dutch uh, scholar, produced a Greek-Latin parallel text. And it was uh, such high quality 
that people immediately recognized it for its value and um, would become the basis of the New Testament translations for the next 300 years. In fact, it was the basis of Martin Luther's German New Testament, um, and, uh, which was just a few years later. And Martin Luther's work with the New Testament and the Old Testament in German became so influential that, in effect, his Bible standardized the German language because before they had a lot of different dialects and no one dialect was the dialect, not the one that people could communicate with easily. And so his Bible became uh, very important in that. 1526, William Tyndale uh, came along and he had printed, translated, printed the first New Testament ever printed in English. And um, it became the forerunner of the King James Bible. Um, although he was martyred, burned at a stake for his translation work, because at that point it was illegal. Back then, in England, at his time, if the authorities would come up and ask your children to repeat the Lord's Prayer, and if they could repeat it, they would be taken away forever, and the family would be burned at the stake because they immediately assumed they were Protestants because who else but a Protestant would memorize scripture uh, it, was, it was a tragic time but uh, Tyndale's last words before he died for the Lord was Lord open the eyes of the king and that happened three years later when King Henry authorized the printing and distribution of the great Bible I wanted to show there on the back side of the graph, a page that you have, um, the top part is a short list of old words, archaic words that are still found in the King James Bible. Um, and uh, abase, abated, anon, begat, beret, beguile, chambering, cumber, dissemble. Um, and it goes on. The word incontinent is not what you think it means. It just meant some of that was immoral. Um, peculiar means almost the opposite. I mean, meant the opposite back then. Today, it means odd. Then, it means special, very special, a treasure. The word prevent back then meant precede, but you can see how language changes over time. And those last three words, anybody know what wist, want, and what is? Well, I'll give you a clue. What is the past tense of wist, if that'll help. Uh, and that comes from the German, because English was influenced by German. Um, and wist is to know, to know something. And what would be to know it in the past tense. And want meant that was what you were accustomed to doing. Um, anyway, and then I wanted to show you um, some of the new and beautiful phrases that came into the language with uh, William Tyndale's beautiful work that he did on translating the first Bible that was printed. And some of these words that really become a part of the English language were there, and that's the second group down. Betrayer, brokenhearted, childishness, divorcement, excommunicate, fellow soldier, housetop, intercession, justifier, long-suffering, mercy seat, peace offering, Passover, sanctifying, scapegoat, thank offering. A lot of these are theological religious terms, and they just didn't exist in English uh, before that time. And um, so Tyndale, as you can tell, loved these compound words. 
And so his work, in fact, down below, some of the phrases that he brought into English as he was trying to translate the Bible as accurately as possible. My brother's keeper, seek and you shall find, judge not that you be not judged, that there be light, soul to the earth, signs of the times, spirit is willing, flesh is weak. These are all phrases coined by William Tyndale, which later came into the Geneva Bible and then the King James Bible. We thank God for his, uh, for his great work. In 1611, uh, the King James Bible uh, was printed. It was a result of 50 scholars over a seven-year period. Uh, 1885 was a revised English version, um, the 1901's American Standard Version. And the 1885 English Revised Version was one of the Bibles that Ellen White would quote from. Now, most, most often she quoted from King James because that was the most widely known, but she also quoted from the, the English Revised Version. 52 was Revised Standard. 71 was the New American Standard Bible. 73 was the New International Version, which was the work of 80 scholars from many evangelical backgrounds. And they were trying to a balance between word-for-word translation and with phrase-for-phrase. And uh, it's considered a a reliable uh, translation as well. And then the 1982, the New King James Version, 130 scholars, seven years. And the idea there was to update the King James, update and modernize the spelling, the vocabulary, and the grammar, but to retain the, the great beauty of the King James Bible. Um, and just to give you an idea how English has changed and why there's a need for updating and translating and revisions, uh, there at the very bottom of the page, you can see uh, John 3.16, beginning at the very bottom is the Anglo-Saxon, which is essentially unreadable for us. And then Wycliffe, for God or loved or so the world that he gave his own begotten son. So it's, it's heading our direction for modern English, but a little ways to go. Then Tyndale is much more readable. Um, and the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible. Um, and then we come to the Catholic Bible, which is the Douay Rams. Uh, and still, uh, it's very accurate. And then we have the first edition of the King James Bible in 1611, which you'll know the spelling has changed a lot since then. Now, the message is there, but the, the one that we have in our hands today was revised a number of times uh, with the last major revision in 1769. So the King James Bible that we have a privilege of having today is not the original one. It's been revised a number of times um, through the years. Um, there are three types of translation categories, you might say, or groups. Um, You have the very formal or literal, which would be the King James, New King James, um, or Revised Standard. And then you have the dynamic translation, which is a little bit more like phrase-to-phrase translation rather than word-to-word. Um, and it can end up being a little smoother because they're not 
tied into the word for word of the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, which often have a little different word order. Paraphrased Bibles are more like a commentary. And we have an example of that uh, in the page that uh, I shared with you. Um, there in the middle, this is one verse, Colossians 2.9. And uh, in the Greek-English transliteration, which is virtually the same as King James, because in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then you see King James below that, New King James, almost identical. New International Version, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Uh, the clear word you see below that, which is a paraphrase. Uh, fullness of deity was in Christ when he was here and continues to be. Um, he is the only human in whom all the wisdom and knowledge is found. And then we have the Message Bible, which has this long paragraph, uh, which is interesting, interesting reading, but it's not the Bible. That's not what the Bible actually says. And so we need to be very careful. There are some other translations out there which are have distortions in them. There's a new one that came out recently called the Gender Neutral Bible. Um, and there's other versions which are somebody's got an agenda and they want to bend the scriptures to, to fit whatever you know they're, they're considering. But what is recommended is that your formal and, and uh, even your dynamic, good dynamic translations, New English Bible, NIV, or your very formal literal, King James, New King James, and so forth, or New American Standard, are great for studying and for presenting the word and for speaking and sharing in Sabbath school and preaching. Paraphrases do not belong in the pulpit. Interesting reading, and they don't belong in Bible studies either uh, because that's not what the Word of God says. It's like a commentary, and commentaries are interesting, and it can be helpful, but it's not actually the Word of God. One of the interesting things that in the in the journey of the King James Bible was that up until 1885, it still included the Apocrypha, all those doubtful books that the Catholic Church likes and is recommended. But at that time, the Protestants said, no, we don't, we don't need the Apocrypha. It's doubtful. We, they, their, their theology doesn't match up with the rest of the Bible. And so that was taken out of the, of the King James. Um, there were printing errors, which were later corrected, um, that happen anytime you're dealing with human beings. <laughs> things happen. But in spite of that, even when the printing errors have occurred, uh, or occasionally even a translation error, God through his spirit still has the ability and the power to bring people through the word to Christ. Um, and we're so thankful for that. One of the startling things that uh, I, I noticed a friend of mine was telling me that the, he was listening to a discussion of why is the King James is the last perfect translation, as some people apparently think. And so the, he asked this person, please turn to Acts 12.4. And in the King, King James Bible, talking about Herod and, and Peter, it says that when they had apprehended him, they put him in prison, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Easter was not in the original Greek. 
uh, Easter wasn't even thought of for hundreds of years, um, what it should have said and has been corrected in the New King James and the more modern translations, it was Passover. That's what they were talking about was Passover. They weren't talking about Easter. Um, the uh, translators of the King James Bible worked with manuscripts from the 12th century, but then when the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, they now have access to manuscripts that are a 1,000 years older, taking them much closer back to the time of the apostles and Jesus. Um, and so they have been greatly helped by these older manuscripts. In the best Bibles today, they have references. And if there's a slight variation in wording or a word is not there, and once in a while even a particular verse may not be there, they'll tell you in the margin, some of this group of manuscripts has it, this one doesn't. But none of this affects our salvation um, because God ha has his hand over it. Today, there's so many specialized Bibles, and after potluck, if you like, I have a few of them with me, uh, including this one, which is the Blended Gospel by a Dr. Hulquist. I understand his relative, maybe his mother used to be a member here years ago, and... Um, and so what he did, very carefully, very beautifully, with a lot of artwork, he took the four Gospels and, and merged them into one continuous narrative. So you get to have this beautiful overview of the four Gospels. And it tells you all along the way, okay, this, one can't, this phrase came from Luke and this verse came from John and so forth. But a beautiful reading because you kind of get the overview. There's a number of other specialized Bibles that can be very helpful as well. Never before in history has God's word been more available to more people in more languages. But there are still about 2,000 languages without a Bible translation. At least 1.5 billion people do not have the complete Bible in their language. Uh, even today, uh, there are many people even in China who do not have a Bible. And of course, the government is making it more difficult to get Bibles in. But right now, the uh, American Bible Society is working on a project, and somehow they worked it out so they can get in uh, 200,000 Bibles. And they are able to do this with donations for $1 each per Bible. The Bible in Chinese, amazing. The, the Word of God says, Faith comes by hearing, and the hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Jesus said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And we have the promise of Jesus in John 16. However, when he, the spirit of truth, come, he will guide you into all truth. And James said, be doers of the word, but not hearers only. Hearing in the Bible implied a call to obedience and action. Word of God, divine truth, human words, through the ages at tremendous cost and sacrifice, Many died as martyrs because they loved the word of God more than life itself. My prayer for all of us is that we may truly treasure God's word because we have this gift in our hands and can listen personally to his voice through the word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work throughout the ages, preserving your word. At such great cost, and those who've gone before, willing to die that we might have the word of God. 
We thank you, and may we treasure it as much as they did. In Jesus' name, amen.